0: Coming up this hour, we got some headlines for you, and then we're joined by author and speaker, Becky Harling. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I got a bunch of headlines. This is kind of what we've been doing with this first segment each day, so not a lot of commentary other than... You know, my opinions on Ask Jeeves and Net Zero, but um, (laughs) we're going to start with just uh, a few headlines and fair warning. Most of them are pretty heavy, but this first Mm -hmm. one is not. You want to you want to take this first one? Yeah, I don't even know what to do with this. I'll just give you the headline and let everybody else figure
1: out what to do with it. Uh, It says platypuses, uh, they glow under ultraviolet light and nobody knows why. (laughs) Okay. platypus (laughs) here here's what that is when we get back to dinner parties use that one as your icebreaker Mm -hmm. that's a good one
0: right there i just i wanted to include it in there because i thought this might be a heavy kind of show so let's it even (laughs) has like photos it's amazing it's crazy i just i love when the scientific community goes we have no idea we have no here's our findings I got nothing to write today. Let's do this one. (laughs) No clue. Like, Yeah. Have we run the platypie article yet. Now go for it, Gary, (laughs) whatever. It's evergreen. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this one's a little tricky and I have some friends who are pastors out in this area that have been weighing in on it uh, from Christian headlines. San Diego judge allows strip clubs to reopen while churches remain closed. You want to walk us into this one a little bit? (laughs)
1: Yeah. And I don't know anything of it. So let me just read from it. Like you said, at Christian headlines, it says, while churches and schools in San Diego are being met with intensified restrictions, a California judge has ordered that San Diego strip clubs can reopen. According to the Christian post, a decision from uh, the judge said that the state must end any actions prohibiting the strip clubs from quote, being allowed to provide live adult entertainment. This decision comes after two strip club owners filed lawsuit in October. Uh, it said that the judge's decision is not final as a full hearing is scheduled. And so last week, San Diego, it says return to the state's purple tier lockdown procedures and increase COVID-19 uh, cases. The order requires restaurants, gyms and churches to move to outdoor only services and places capacity restrictions on retail business and in-person school classes. And so, you know, the headline kind of says it all. I'm curious what your friends out there said, because. I wonder if there's more nuance to this, but when you read it, you're like, well, this is kind of ridiculous, right? Like that schools and churches and businesses are having to close, uh, but they're leaving strip clubs open. So what are your friends from out there saying?
0: Well, I don't want to throw any of them under the bus necessarily. We, we did get a comment on our Facebook page, so that seems like okay. a fair game. So Isaac said, this is wild. And while I don't agree, I guess I can understand it from a fiscal perspective, at least, since these types of clubs are businesses and have to pay taxes, which is good for the city. Where churches don't. I'm not saying it's the best logic, but that's what I think at least. So either way, yeah. Again, most of the people that I see weighing in are pastors. They're not just residents of the city; they're pastors in the city, so they obviously have uh, a very specific opinion. But yeah, it is definitely one that I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around the argument for. Like that's like I'm like, okay, Ian, you're coming at it from a very biased perspective. You are a pastor. You you know some. That that one kind of I'm befuddled a little bit, but yeah. and uh, it's
1: also the problem that we're running into around here, right? Uh, only a mere couple hours ago, our governor has put us in the state of Illinois under greater restrictions, uh-huh, right. and and it's when there seems to be a lack of consistency. That's what this story strikes me as, right? Like the headline is it's a strip club versus a church, like that's like crazy, but but it's really about a lack of consistency. Like I can't be open, but they can be open, and you can't, and and it's with that lack of consistency that seems to keep cutting the legs out from under uh, any of these mitigation, uh, things that are going on right now. And so even in Illinois, we're wrestling with this, right? This kind of place can be open. This one can't. It's, it's, uh, the inconsistency I find really frustrating.
0: And I always want to try to keep some level of international news out in front of us as well. So this one's from Christian post, uh, quote, the next Jihad evangelical leader and rabbi warn about Christian genocide in Africa. This one is tough. We won't spend too much time on it, but, um, what's what's sort of the the general core of this one
1: yeah, the rise it says of violent extremist groups throughout Africa, as well as the constant attacks against Christian communities in the continent's most populated country has religious leaders fearful that the quote next jihad, as you said, is underway as world leaders seem to be rushing to address the problem, and it talks about how people don't really care about what's going on in Africa, and that's one of the problems but uh it's it's just this idea, like you said uh i i never know you, you would think if you, if there was something this big going on we would know about it but but i can become so focused on my own life and what's going on in america that to read this it's just shocking to read it you're just like excuse me and i would never heard of this uh and and shame on me and shame on us for that as well but these kinds of stories remind us that a uh there's places in the world where there is serious persecution going on and b Those of us who are in places where we're not facing that, we really need to be praying and doing whatever we can uh, in order to provide assistance.
0: Well, speaking of shocking, Brian, and you can probably hear (laughs) the deep sigh in my voice. You're laughing because you you, you already know where we're going. I I do want to skip it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I don't want to go there at all, which is why I'm only dedicating 45 seconds of this segment to it. But the, uh, the Falwells are back in the news. Why don't you tell us why? Yeah. Raw story
1: just says, I'm just going to read the headline and leave it at that. Jerry Falwell Jr. and wife Becky ranked Liberty University students that they wanted to sleep with, according to a report. That there was this little game that they played, and it again speaks to just why they needed to go away and the problems that we've been talking about for so long as to when you kind of turn a blind eye to character. Uh, things continue to come out. And I read this story and I texted you or you texted me and it was like, ugh, and I'm not surprised. So yeah. it's sad. It's, it continues to be sad.
0: It's really sad. And it's it's so frustrating too, because I know I know friends of mine that are seeing these things and coming to conclusions that I honestly can't really, I can't blame them for. So that's heartbreaking. And again, just to say it out loud, that brings Brian and I know joy to, you know, to do stories like that. But uh, this isn't really one that I think we can, breeze through quickly. But uh, I just found this one and I, I kind of want to put it here. So we at least made sure it was shared to the Facebook page. It's out of the Atlantic. It says it's time to hunker down. A devastating surge is here. Unless Americans act aggressively, it will get much larger very quickly. Any Any parts of this stand out to you in particular?
1: Just that you and I talked about it a while ago, like, will people be willing to shut down again? And we're at that spot now with the holidays coming and winter coming. And my fear is that people will not be willing to do even some of the smaller mitigation steps uh, because every I I get not everybody believes doctors or numbers or this or that. But the people that I trust are saying it's bad right now. And if we're not careful, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. And so this article is just saying, hey. Uh, We're either going to take this seriously and act aggressively now or we're not. And I think that remains to be seen about
0: what actually happens here. Yeah, I think you're right, man. Sorry to end on a bummer of a note for this segment. I promise it's about to get a whole lot better for two (laughs) segments. Author and speaker Becky Harling is going to join us. She's the author of three brand new books, uh, Listen Well, Lead Better, Psalms for the Anxious Heart, and then coming out in January, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. I'm thrilled to have, not just for one, but two segments, best-selling author and popular speaker, Becky Harling. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, it is great to be with you, Ian. I am delighted to be here. I am an author and a speaker. I'm also married to Steve Harling. I'm a coach. I'm a parent to four grown married kids. And most importantly, I am grandparent to 14 grandkids, 10 and under.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Becky, we're so happy to have you on. And, well, off the air, we had to get over the fact that you're in beautiful Colorado and we're we're right now uh, out here, but uh, we'll forgive you for that. But, Thank uh, you. You're <laughs> welcome. Hey, at, you wrote an article at Crosswalk that I found just fascinating called Why Our Divided Culture Needs Philippians 2 Now. And you talk about how polarization is tearing at our country, but also ripping apart our churches. And you basically said if the Apostle Paul was writing to the church today— uh, he'd probably talk to, about Philippians chapter two. You said your mind went to Philippians chapter two. Could could you talk to us a little bit about why Philippians chapter two is so important for the church today?
2: Yeah, because I don't remember a time in my personal history where not only are we politically divided here in America so uh, seriously, but that division and that polarization is really entering the church. And when Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he said we you've got to have this attitude that was the same in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God instead he humbled himself. And I just think with all the political conversations that I've been privy to over the last uh probably year or more There hasn't been a lot of humility in those. You know, people Mm. seem more cemented into their view than ever, and they're convinced that the other side is purely demonic.
0: Right, right. You mentioned that passage in Philippians, which is one of my favorites, and we just taught on this a couple weeks ago, where the idea that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be, some texts say, grasped or like clung to, held onto, Mm -hmm. which is a topic Brian and I have talked a lot about in the last couple of years is, is this idea of Christians fighting for their rights or demanding their rights. I would I would love to know your posture in that. Is it is it something that Christians, should we be demanding our rights, or is there something maybe in Philippians 2 or elsewhere that uh, models a, a different way?
2: I personally do not believe that believers should be demanding their rights or screaming about their rights because— When Jesus invited us to follow him, he invited us to lay down our rights. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I think that here in America, you know, it's, it's fascinating, Ian, because it's more an American thing. In the last five years, I've had the opportunity to travel with my husband, Steve. To over 70 countries around the world many of those countries that are quote-unquote closed countries to the gospel you know and 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 many of those countries don't understand us as american christians because they're like you're always shouting about your rights what's that about that's not even consistent with the gospel and in philippians 2 Paul says, value others above yourself and that we're to do that in humility. And when we're screaming and shouting about our rights, I think the gospel gets lost, unfortunately.
1: Mm -hmm. And in those times when we disagree, especially within the church, but when we uh, disagree about maybe strongly about something, how can we still show respect and show calm in those circumstances?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a really important quality for us. Um, I think, first of all, we have to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we have to understand that there are good people on both sides of the political aisle, and when we disagree with the other side, whatever side that is, we can at least listen to understand their point of view, You know, I've, I've, with all the racial tension that's been in our country, I have had a number of really wonderful conversations with um, a Black American pastor, and I, you know, I've just been asking him, "How do you feel during all of this?" You know, help me understand Uh, because some of this is just wonky, and, you know, he, his experience has been that many Christians um, over the issue of Black Lives Matter, have tried to prove that racism doesn't exist. And Mm. that's not helpful. You know, Mm. instead we need to listen to those who are feeling like their viewpoint is not being heard. And we're Mm. to listen with the goal of understanding rather than correcting or proving our own point.
0: Wow. I I'm so interested in that idea of listening. I actually just gave a a talk a couple of days ago actually on incarnational listening, taking a page from the Mm -hmm. Skizeros book, but you actually wrote a book this year. It looks like listen, well, lead better. And I, I imagine some people might look at that title and think, I don't understand the connection leadership and listening are two totally different skills and they don't have anything in common. Can you bridge that gap a little bit? Why, why do you think listening well is part and parcel with, with leading well?
2: because we have to lead we're called to lead like Jesus did and Jesus was an incredible listener and he, you know you think about his conversation with the woman at the well and all the questions he asked and his conversation with Nicodemus and drawing Nicodemus out and you know as leaders somehow we've adopted this view that to lead is to communicate well but we're only thinking in terms of communication as speaking well and we may be sabotaging our own leadership because we're not listening well. In order for people to feel loved, they have to feel heard. Mm-hmm. And so if we want our teams to be on board with the vision that we're trying to set, our teams need to feel heard.
1: Hmm. How, do you have any practical steps or practical suggestions to listening better? What are, what are maybe one or two things we could do that would improve how we do at listening?
2: Ah, I love that question. (laughs) uh, I have another book coming out in January called how to listen. So your kids will talk. Hmm. Um, Anyway, I I think one of the best skills that you can put intentional effort into is the art of asking good questions rather than going into a setting and thinking, I'm going to wow everybody with a great story. Draw other people out and learn how to ask them questions. And then when I, I think one of the most challenging times for leaders to listen is when they're being accused of something or they're in mm-hmm. conflict. And rather than listening with a bent towards defending yourself or proving your point, switch the focus of your listening to understanding. Mm-hmm. And when somebody's really wigging out at you, stop and say, Tell me more. And invite them to wig out a little more. <laughs> yeah, right. It's counterintuitive, but it'll win you uh, respect in the long run. I promise. Mm-hmm.
0: That's so good. We we only have about a minute left in this segment, but I'd love to know the other side of the coin. Like, what do we risk by not listening well? Like, what what happens in our relationships, in our churches, in our communities if we if we actually don't take seriously the charge to be better listeners?
2: Man, we sabotage our own leadership. Have you ever good. been in the room? with a person who really wants leadership and they're just talking and talking and talking and talking. Mm. And you look around the room and you realize people are completely zoned out. Nobody's even listening to what they're saying. You know, they're on their phones or they're off in la la land somewhere. So we sabotage our own leadership when we're not listening and we ruin our reputation and our credibility as a leader
0: author and speaker, Becky Harling. She's written a number of books, three of which are on listening, by the way, which I love, How to Listen So People Will Talk, Listen Well, Lead Better, and coming out this January, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. Mine are one and three right now, so all they do is talk. Uh, (laughs) So when when you write the book in 2022 about how to make them talk less, I would be buying (laughs) a truckload. But you also have written a number of books about uh, what to do with an anxious heart, or in 2005, Finding Calm, in life's chaos, I think a lot of people would describe 2020 as chaotic for a whole host of reasons. I, I'd love for you to speak a little more on that. How how in the world could anyone hope to find calm in the midst of the storms of what 2020 has been?
2: Yeah, this has really been a year, hasn't it? And yeah. you know, we've gone through um, what Peter Scazzaro says are cascading crises, mm-hmm. and I. I really love that because you know, we had co we've had COVID and I think all of us thought, oh cool, we'll take a month off and mm-hmm. then oh. it will be gone and now we're on eight months in and it's nowhere going away yet. Right. And you know, and then we with that we've had um, you know, the racial injustice rear its ugly head again here in America mm-hmm. and racial prejudice uh coming to the forefront and riots and all of that and then uh, on the heels of all of that all of the political unrest and this polarization where you know it, it, in one week i heard um how can a christian vote for donald trump and i heard how can a christian vote for joe biden right. and and the thing is we are called to be a part of christ's kingdom i i will say this this isn't a direct answer to your question but First and foremost, whenever the church has gotten too political, it has not been good for the health and the life of the church. You can look mm-hmm. back through church histories. Uh, we have been called to follow Jesus. And so your question, Ian, was actually, how can we find calm? And I I, I think this is what people are crying out for right now. I mean, you can feel the anxiety right. in the air, right? right? And and I have had to work on this myself. I'm a person who has struggled for years with anxiety. I mean, going way back to my childhood. And so I've had to learn that there are several key steps I need to take to manage my own anxiety. One of those is I need to slow down. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're such a hurried society. And when we're always in a hurry, I think our anxiety grows. I've had to learn how to practice silence every day just getting alone with God and fixing my eyes on him. I practice worship every day because as I'm Mm -hmm. worshiping God for who he is, he brings calm into my chaos. And I feel like I'm a person that I I just have had a lot of chaos in my (laughs) life. Right. And so I'm living this message day by day and moment by moment.
1: Mm. And Another one of the books on your website here that you wrote is a short 30-day devotion about anxiety. And you talk about uh, it's from the book of Psalms. And you said to cling to what's certain in a time of uncertainty, find peace uh, where there's anxiety. uh, Look to the Psalms. Could you talk to people out there as to why the Psalms are such a great place to go as you're feeling uh, anxiety?
2: Yeah, I love the Psalms. The Psalms became my favorite way back when I was in college because they're so honest, they're so authentic. I mean, I think a lot of people have grown up with this idea that to be a good Christian means that you have to be happy all the time or you can't experience anxiety or you can't experience anger, you know? And then you get David writing a psalm to the Lord and he says, break their teeth, oh God. And I kind (laughs) of love that, you know? I think we all prayed that at one time or another. And so I think the psalms are a good place for us to take our anxiety. We can read a psalm. And we can kind of journey with the psalmist through their emotions, but the psalmist always bring their psalm back to praising God for who he is.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so as we mentioned, you have two books uh, coming out. Well, I, I don't know how you found time to really come up with three books. It looks like coming up next, <laughs> exactly. Listen Well, Lead Better, Psalms for the Anxious Heart, and the one about kids, How to Listen to Your Kids Will Talk. It's something that Brian and I have mentioned a lot. His kids are a little older. But one of the things that can be easy to miss is how much COVID is going to affect them, not just in the short term, but in the long term, psychologically, socially. How do we I think it's as important as ever to learn how to engage our kids well. So I would love to know. Tell us a little bit about that book, the heartbeat for the book. I mean, you probably wrote it pre-COVID, right? Like what was sort of the, the aim and goal for a book like this?
2: Yeah, I, well, the publisher actually asked me to write it, and I jumped at the opportunity because, you know, Steve and I really didn't know what we were doing when we were raising kids, right? I always <laughs> said if I was going to write a book on parenting, it would be blackmail, bribery, and a whole lot of prayer, <laughs> that's kind of how we raised our kids, but, you know, the Lord gave us this child. Our third child was a negotiator, and I just thought I was going to lose my ever-loving mind, and, <laughs> When one day I was praying and she was about three or four years old. And I remember the Lord speaking to me very clearly, Becky, she needs a voice. You give her a voice. And I remember thinking that is such a bizarre message coming from the Lord. I'm pretty sure she has a voice. Mm -hmm. And the, the Lord taught me that my role as a parent was not to kill the will of my child, but to shape that will and grow her into a woman who would raise her voice for the glory of God and the kingdom. And so, and actually I just got off the phone with my adult daughter, Steph, (laughs) a little while ago, you know, and she's now on staff at her church and is raising her voice in a great way. But I think as parents in this COVID season, it is essential That we are checking in with our kids, even kids as young as the toddler years. Like, how are you feeling? And giving them permission. Like, I understand why you're scared. I understand why it's kind of freaky to go into Target and see everybody with a mask Mm -hmm. on. I understand these feelings and they make sense. And God understands them too. And allowing your children to express their feelings.
1: Mm. And what happens uh, when we don't listen to our kids? What's the result in our relationship? And also what's the result in our kids as they continue to get older?
2: Oh man, you forfeit connection. You know, connection is everything. And I think for too long, Parents, Christian parents in particular, have focused on, I need to get this kid to obey, when really I think Jesus would like us focusing on, I need to connect with this child. Because how you listen to them when they're toddlers is going to determine how much they talk to you when they're adults. And so you need to be the safe place where they can bring all their feelings and prosper.
0: Uh, We didn't have you on, so you would convict me as a father, Becky. (laughs) I I wasn't prepared for all of that. (laughs) Okay, so my my guess is now two segments in. People are going to want to know where can they find out more about you, if they wanted to book you for a speaking engagement, where can they find out more of your writing or your books? Mm -hmm. So would you just hit us with all of that, website, social, and the like?
2: Yep, sure. I have two websites now. I have Becky. At Be- I have BeckyHarling.com, and then with my husband, I've launched HarlingLeadership.com. I'm now offering coaching for mm-hmm. those that want to write a book. I'm actually starting to offer parent coaching to just support parents as they raise kids. Um, you can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all those things. <laughs> you just <laughs> <have> <laughs> me, <I'm laughs> Harling, <I'm laughs> there.
0: That's about how we talk about them. All of the things. It's just, uh, it's out there. (laughs) Just remember again, that is Becky Harling.com, HarlingLeadership.com, author of a number of books, not the least of which is coming out in January, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk, Psalm for the Anxious Heart, Listen Well, Lead Better. Becky, it has been such a joy to have you on the show. Thank you for giving us the time.
2: Hey, it's been a delight to be with you guys. I'd love to come on again sometime.
0: We would love that. Count us in. Appreciate it.
2: All
0: right. Take care. You too. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad you're here, wherever here may be. Maybe you're driving. Maybe you're working out. Maybe you are... What, what do you do? Oh, you you mow the grass when you listen to podcasts, don't you?
1: I do, I do. Although soon I'll be I'll be uh, shoveling the driveway listening mm-hmm. to podcasts. That's
0: the I'm assuming the you're guess. you're ahead of the curve on the leaf raking business. That's been done for a while now. It actually has. I'm a big I'm a big mow the leaves guy. So I'll pull out the lawnmower
1: and just mow them, and uh, that seems to work better for me.
0: You don't rake any of them. I do rake them up
1: and then I mow them. So instead <laughs> of uh, picking them up, so because um, we have this one tree that dumps.
0: Unbelievable amounts of leaves. Yeah, <laughs> and so bonkers. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? We're not going to talk about mowing for the whole segment. I promise. And this was a topic. I think we actually talked about this with David French yesterday a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least this topic. It says uh, amid cries for church unity post-election, some Christians say not so fast. Which I imagine even just sharing that headline, some people will be thinking exactly that's right, not so fast. Other people might be thinking, wait, what could possibly what could someone possibly present as a reason to not pursue church unity? So I thought it, it was a pretty intriguing headline. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd love for you, Brian, to get us into it.
1: Yeah, it, it talks about it starts by beginning to talk about Pastor Justin. I'm going to go with dower, A-D-O-U-R from okay. New York City. Sure. Uh, and he said he had a message for his congregation that he knew they didn't want to hear. He said uh, this might make your stomach turn a little bit, but. Uh, viewers watching online, a Democrat Christian has more in common with conservative Christians, even a staunch Trump supporting Republican than with fellow Democrats who are not believers and vice versa. So that's kind of what Scott Sauls's thing and uh, Jesus Outside the Lines. Uh, he says his church, part of a network founded by Tim Keller, is as, device as a, a diverse as its gentrifying neighborhood. He said his 100 to 150 members of his church are black, Asian, Hispanic and white. Uh, and he knows he has supporters who both voted for Trump and who voted for Joe Biden. Pastors in American churches are used to dealing with division. Uh, but he said there's a lot of unifying things about the gospel. Christian leaders across the country have been sounding that theme in the aftermath of the election. Uh, after an election year in which Trump hewed closely to a base thickly populated by evangelical Christians, while enduring fierce opposition from a revised religious left, these pastors and other Christian leaders are urging followers of all political convictions to find common cause in their faith. Uh, Ed Stetzer tweeted, they put here, a divided country needs a united church. A divided country needs a united church. Uh, Unlike some evangelical leaders who suggested in the run-up to the election that Christians had no choice but to vote Republican, J.D. Greer uh, said that Christians shouldn't neatly fit into either political party, nor should they engage conversations about politics in the same way as others, Greer said in his podcast. Uh, and so that's kind of the background. We'll pause there for a second, because I think it's about to make a turn here. But it's this idea, and I've said it here on the show, this idea that one of the greatest things we could give is the, is to a fractured uh, country, a fractured culture, to see the unity of of the church. And I I think you'd agree that that's a, at least a call that we've heard a lot here uh, in the past couple of weeks when she said,
0: yeah, I think uh, I can agree with that. It's, it's kind of like this for me, the, the hinge statement is when Curry said, you can't just jump to hope. There's a process you have to go through. There's no shortcuts to it. What I find interesting about that statement is I agree, but I also don't think that hope is necessarily a conclusion. Like I think that hope Mm -hmm has space within it for a process for something to be i think hope is maybe in some cases the engine or maybe not the engine the fuel by which the engine runs toward some kind of light at the end of the tunnel so i'm not sure i'm not sure it feels almost like a false dichotomy but the overall premise of the article does make a lot of sense to me actually that you know Mm -hmm. some camps are quick to say Sort of a a much longer winded version of like can't we all just get along you know can John seventeen we need to all be unified I can certainly see people I think rightly saying well yes but this is this is also not a time to excuse or diminish or belittle the very real divisions or fractures that exist between us or even in our in our own communities so for us to jump you know to leapfrog over all of those and say church unity without doing Mm -hmm. the hard work of you know, cause the word here he uses is, is process the process also can look a lot like lament or mm-hmm. repentance or surgery. Like there could be things that need to be like, you know, revealed in us and, and extracted from us individually or as entities or systems like that's, that's painful stuff. So even the word process yeah. to me almost doesn't have quite the, the gravity that I think some people would argue is necessary if we ever hope to get to a place of unity sometime in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think that one of the problems we have with unity and just that term is too many people, uh, like you were touching on here, take it as, hey, just just pretend that you weren't upset or just pretend that there are no uh, deep seated disagreements here. Just pretend that there's no hurt Uh, and and kind of uh, it's it's kind of like this. just kind of smoothing over when under, not really dealing with what caused the problems to begin with. This article is going to go on to say, while yes, we want unity, uh, uh, tweeted uh, Austin Channing Brown uh, from, uh, she wrote, I'm still here. Black dignity in a world made for whiteness said, miss me with the unity and healing platitudes. I'm mm-hmm. wholly uninterested in a conversation about unity that's not rooted in the unrelenting pursuit of racial justice. And so uh it's this idea that unity should be a goal. Uh, but that unity is actually done by working out the disagreements and understanding what we just had, we just talked a lot about listening and having conversations. And I think all too often in the church, when we use the word unity, and I'm guilty of this sometimes, when we use the word unity, it's like, hey, just forget why you were mad in the first place. Like mm-hmm. let's just let's pretend like not pretend let's be unified but it's really just kind of a pretend unity cuz deep down everyone's still going yeah but i know that you're still believe this and i'm still upset with you uh and so i think what this article is helping me even it's it's challenging me with is unity still the goal a goal uh but unity is a lot harder and and takes more time and more energy and effort than, hey, let's just pretend everything's nice and smile at each other at church and go home. I don't think that's the unity that, that we're talking about, nor the unity that Jesus prayed for
0: in John 17. Well, oh, I think it's also important too to remember that if you're in any position of power, privilege, or authority unity via kumbaya will seem way more viable than than to someone on the other side of that if if you're in a position or of a people group that has been oppressed or marginalized under the boot of someone or something you will probably much more clearly see you'll see past the facade like no we can't just kumbaya no unity is something that we long for not just because Jesus prayed for it, but because we know that's where healing and restoration actually lies, but to get there though, there are steps that we can't we can't just skip over, and I think that's part of why I think even this last year, you and I have you know tried to commit a whole lot more segments to just simply listening, stepping back, lamenting even the own you know our own parts of our our wiring, our experience, our blind spots, and I think until we're willing to, to actually do the because it uh, jumping to hand holding and singing in a lot of ways lacks the recognition that like I I may have contributed to some of this brokenness or some of this fracture. Like ah let's all just hold hands. You know that's often what we mm-hmm. we we instruct kids to do. Like all right just kiss them and say you're sorry. You know that's that's not a a, a bad thing, but I think it it's uh, it's incomplete. And either way, I thought the article is not very long. It raises some really interesting points. I, uh, I highly encourage you to check it out because I just, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a really compelling conversation that we need to continue to have, even if it's not, you know, in the headlines as, as much as it was six months ago. And that, as always, is on our Facebook page, and we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, this headline to me I just found so fascinating. It asks this question, does knowing God just take practice? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, who I just learned was poked by the wet nose of his (laughs) dog during the break. Is that true? (laughs) I, uh,
1: here, let me paint a picture where I sit. Uh, I've told you all, I'm looking outside. And uh, my bed is right behind me. And apparently my dog jumped up and started like licking me. And I didn't know she was there. That's a terrifying thing to have happen and he, <laughs> while talking and on the screamed, radio.
0: He screamed like a little child. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ooh, man, that was crazy. All right. So I thought this article was fascinating. It's out of the New Yorker, which some may consider a uh, a surprising source. Once you learn the headline, the headline is, does knowing God just take practice for both the faithful and the doubtful the source of religious experience can seem mysterious. One anthropologist explores belief in more mundane terms as a form of expertise. That is how you write a headline and a subheadline, a subheading. Because I, <laughs> I, I remember reading that, thinking, all right, I'm, I'm all in. I'm curious now. So, you want to get us into it? Yeah. And again,
1: of the. As happens with The New Yorker, it's a pretty long article, but let's yeah. let's dive at least a little bit into it. She says, uh, the author says, I was nine or 10 when my parents left their sto- stolid Anglican church for one that was undergoing what was known as, quote, charismatic renewal. This was the mid-1970s in the northern English city of Durham, but the energies were all American. The young congregants uh, played guitars, gave testimonials, raised their hands in Rhapsody, and danced with the spirit in their aisles. So, Uh, they moved to this church. Uh, It goes on to say, the extremity of emotion that pulsed through the congregation every Sunday alarmed me. I came to think of that church as the place where grownups weep. Hmm. Charismatic or evangelical churches are theaters of spiritual catharsis. You come to such places and lay your burdens before the Lord, open your soul to the Holy Spirit, and let all the sadness and evil out, as my mother once put it. Not my mother, the author's mother. Uh, (laughs) This crisis of transformation was often physically arduous. People shuddered and their eyes filled with tears. Uh, This was where perfectly ordinary English people seemed to lead a kind of double life, an existence uh, that in its strange abandon and abnormality appeared almost criminally intense. What was unsettling to the child, in other words, was probably what was so exciting to the adult convert, the drama of transferred authority. The believing adult pulled toward the commanding Christ felt the divine power of God's call and the divinely inspired power of the pastors and elders who voiced that call. You must change your life. But the unbelieving or skeptical child with no great desire to change his life felt abandoned by those who should have been in charge and wondered furtively at the authority of that divine command. Who was this God, this Jesus, this Holy Spirit? If he didn't exist, then Sunday morning was a mask sick mass sickness. I, uh, masks on my mind there. Mm-hmm. Nothing more than contagion of hallucination. Uh, and so the author goes on to say, "I know how unbalanced this is. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure I should have seen all the human goodness and decency. There was plenty of that around too." I bring it up as a way of explaining my somewhat unbalanced interest in the work of anthropologist T.M. Lerman, who has been studying American evangelical worship for 20 years. So before we get into what he says about the worship, that is quite the background there of how a skeptical kid or or teenager looked at worship and something that the, that the adults were probably going, this is the greatest thing. God is on the move. And, and this kind of skeptical. You'll wonder how many people walk into our churches or some of our meetings and go. I don't know, this seems really crazy, and that's what this study is going to get at. But, uh, but that's an interesting setup, don't you think, to this story? I, I do think, Brian. Thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on. In <laughs> 2012, Lerman published When God Talks Back, an account of her experiences in charismatic churches in Chicago and the San Francisco area. Uh, These were part of the Vineyard Church Fellowship, a network of congregations founded in in California. Curious about everything, open-eyed, endlessly patient, Lerman embedded herself like a military correspondent. Over several years, she interviewed more than 50 congregants, worshipped and prayed with them, joined Bible study groups, and reported with scrupulous neutrality on their daily spiritual practice. Her new book, How God Becomes Real, represents a distillation of that deep work on American evangelicalism and expands her acute discussion of spiritual practice across other forms of religious devotion that she studied or encountered. Uh, The comparative framework suits her uh, precisely because she is not interested in the questions that so gripped me when I was young. What or who is God and how can we know if this God exists? She passes over questions of belief in search of questions of practice, the technologies of prayer. She wants to know how worshipers open themselves up to their experiences of God, how they communicate with gods and spirits, and in turn hear those gods and spirits reply to them. And she is interested in the kind of therapeutic transformation that such prayerful con- conversation has on the worshiper. Uh, she calls this uh, activity real making and adds that her new book is not a believer's or an atheist, but an anthropologist work so you said you were fascinated by this uh, what what fascinates you about the background of this
0: book well i think the uh the whole notion that practice could arguably be at the center of one's understanding of their own intimacy with the divine like mm. i don't necessarily know that this author would make that case or not but the very fact that when you think about practice you know so often. It feels like this can be a common divide between, you know, like modern Protestant depictions and expressions Mm -hmm. and more ancient liturgical ones. I remember even like in youth group feeling like, oh, they're just reading a prayer that somebody else wrote that's so unorganic, that's so inauthentic. The older I get, the more I realize now there's deep beauty in both and anchoring yourself in the ancient and the prayers that millions of people across the globe are saying on the same day at the same time. You know, there's something sacred to that but i remember really feeling when i was younger like part of the strongest case for protestant evangel evangelicalism was the fact that it you know we touted not having any kind of liturgy even though we did and there wasn't any sort of repetition even though there was you know i mean like we could almost like trick yourself into thinking that it like was more organic and some of the expressions certainly were more organic than others but this idea of Practice being anchored to to our sense, at least, of intimacy and closeness. You know, there's a a ministry that currently meets at the Chapel of Willow Creek called the Practice, and there, the gathering at least a year ago would have been in the round, and there was singing, and then there was prayer, and the sermon wasn't thirty thirty five minutes; it's fifteen, and then it's followed by a practice, a practice based on what the sermon was just about to actually help us learn to, to embody, you know, what Eugene Peterson calls the, the unforced rhythms of grace, this, this practice posture as a way of like opening ourselves up to closeness and intimacy. To me, I just, I, I find to be really fascinating. And I thought that this, this article presented some really uh, interesting observations about our interactions with that.
1: Yeah. And, and what's interesting too, is this anthropologist, Uh, Kind of by the end or the author, I should say, specifically of this article kind of says when talking about prayer and people saying that they hear from God and all this stuff kind of says this is a little bit ridiculous. And uh, and and I could I could understand how somebody from the who's not raised in this way would find this ridiculous. Uh, Do you think that this can be explained simply by when the Bible says, uh, you know, uh, that it will look like foolishness to people who don't understand? Is that it, or is there more to it? Because it is interesting to see somebody from the quote-unquote outside go, this is kind of ridiculous when you when you watch it and you kind of immerse yourself into uh, into this church that she kind of immersed herself in.
0: Well, the, the foolishness passage is, is more about the cross. That's That's mm-hmm. more about mm-hmm. the foolishness of, hold on, you worship a king that was crucified, not just executed, but crucified. I think that's more of what, that is speaking to you that like for that to be at the center of our story is insane sounding, you know, like, why would you not, there's so many other stories where the King conquers and right, you know, there's, why would you in any way, you know, hitch your wagon to a a suffering servant type story? I think that's what, what Paul specifically is getting at, but I think there's, there's something to that though. Like the, the thought that what seems normative, even for you and I as as pastors would likely seem, perhaps foolish or silly to someone else and until they've actually maybe perhaps experienced some of that mm-hmm. on their own. And mm-hmm. I think that's a, I think it's a fair question. I think there's a lot of layers to this. And uh, I would be, I'd just be really curious to know what people think of it. It is a long read. There's an audio version where you can just sort of listen to all 27 minutes of it. If that's uh, if that's more your jam, but that as always is over on our Facebook page, the common good radio show coming up next, an article at relevant magazine by Joe Saxton, your coworkers are not your competition. That's coming up next here on the common good. On AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad you're here, or still here, or just joining us. Wherever you are on your Common Good journey, you are welcome here. Now, how is that? I just feel like I'm getting like a yoga class or something. Yeah. <laughs> everyone yes. could assume sitting swan or whatever. I don't. Know. I don't know what any sitting, of the moves are called. The, the sitting swan. Sitting swan. <laughs> The odds of that being an actual move are pretty high, though. It would be outstanding
1: if it was. Yes.
0: (laughs) I don't think I want to Google that. Anyway, it's a a big day in the Fromm household. It is. Isn't that
1: right? It is. My oldest daughter, Madeline, Uh, she turns 17 today, which is mind-blowing for me because, like, you know, you always think of your kids as like, no, they're still five. You know, they're still little. And to have her as 17 is is awesome so it's her birthday happy birthday to my girl and uh you know i'm gonna get sappy here ian like when your kid gets old enough that they're like young adults and you're like i really like the person they are that's how i feel about my daughter and she's Uh. 17 and uh her and i went out grabbed a she got a free bagel at panera and then a free drink at starbucks and you know everything's drive-through today so we did that this morning so happy birthday to my daughter And uh, yeah, I don't feel old enough to have a seventeen-year-old, but apparently I am. So there you you got that going for you. So,
0: well, no, I won't say it. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a a number of other days that uh, are worth celebrating today. It's National Homemade Bread Day. I love homemade bread. Baklava Day. It's also National Take a Hike Day, which is hilarious. (laughs)
1: As if like, uh, tell someone to take a hike or to actually take a hike? I day. don't know. Yeah, I guess that says something
0: about me. I read it in the sarcastic forum. National Take a Hike Day, <laughs> take a hike day. which file that under things I've never actually said to another human, but <laughs> I've seen it in movies, you know, a billion times. But it also is a World Prematurity Day, and mm-hmm. both of my boys were born premature. So today holds right. a lot of special meaning to us because I'm remembering the day and uh, again, huge, huge props and love to all the doctors and nurses, right. and hospital staff. Because, man, oh man, that was such a scary day for us. I'm on both counts, i for both babies. So, yeah, uh, yeah, send a note to a, a doctor or nurse you love because, man, it's been it's been a rough year. Okay, so I want to get into this article from Joe Saxon. I don't, I don't know if you know Joe Saxon or are familiar with her work. I don't um, know. She, oh my goodness, you, Google her. She's brilliant. Okay, she, uh, yeah, she's she's done some stuff with community. Over the years, just a really, really wonder, wonderful leader and thinker in Christ followers. So, Joe Saxon, uh, your co-workers aren't your competition. What is going on here?
1: Yeah, let me cut down to like the middle of the article. She writes, uh, our professional peers are the people who are at the same stage as us professionally. When we're trapped in competition and comparison with our peers, we're denied the benefits that conversations and collaboration can bring. If we could choose not to see these people as threats— Uh, we might discover they are colleagues and friends. So over the past few years, she writes, I've spent a lot more time building relationships with professional peers. And as those relationships have grown, Uh, There's a brain trust developing. I even call some of them part of my personal board of directors. Our conversations are honest, practical, and vulnerable. Our topics range from self-care to professional contacts and opportunities. We even discuss what we're getting paid. Like all good relationships, they take time and effort, but they've strengthened and sharpened They have made me wiser and clearer on my calling. These women are in my corner and I'm in theirs. We celebrate one another's gifts and opportunities and successes. And then she's going to do a little list here of what cements these relationships. Man, I really feel like whether you're in ministry or an office setting or whatever, whatever your profession, this feels like uh, it should be obvious, but this is so important because you know, how often in our, in our, I think of it myself in my, in, in church, how often do I look at other pastors and their churches as competition? Right, how often right. do we in our businesses look at even our colleagues? We both might have the same goals of climbing the ladder as competition. And her point is so spot on. Some of the best things I learn and some of the best bouncing off I could do to uh, with about my job is to other pastors that if I don't you know. see them as competition become invaluable uh, and mm-hmm. so this is so important, regardless of the kind of work that you do. Are your coworkers uh competition or are they are, are we on the same team kind of trying to spur one another on and help one another and collaborate? Man, this is uh, this is a this is a difficult one, even though it seems like it should be pretty obvious.
0: Well, and I like what she says. She says, like all good relationships, they take time and effort, but they have strengthened and sharpened me. They have made me wiser and clear. on my calling. These women are in my corner and I'm in theirs. We celebrate one another's gifts and opportunities and successes. So what cements these relationships? Here's what she says. Uh, First, making room for more. Remembering the scarcity problem, the idea that there's uh, room for only one. These habits that help build professional peer relationships confront this mindset head-on, acting in the opposite spirit. We can't always avoid or control the environment offered to us or the obstacles it places in our way, but I refuse to be defined by it. I don't want to see other talented, smart, fearfully, and wonderfully made women as threats. So where scarcity is self-preserving and withholding, these habits are all about audacious generosity. Even if the landscape is scarce, I can still choose to live by abundant generosity and play my part in creating the culture I want to see. I think that's appropriately number one, because I think that's at the core of so much of this unhealthy competition. Because sometimes I do want to say competition is really good. And Mm -hmm. that can like spur us Mm -hmm. to greater excellence. It can keep us sharp. I like competition. I'm a pretty competitive person in general, But that scarcity mindset is a killer that if like you were saying, Brian, if somebody in your town gets a speaking gig you wanted or, you know, what are other metrics number, you know, numbers, attendance that you wanted or whatever, it is easy to like point like, ah, there's only so many people in this town and they're taking them all or they got the opportunity that is like that's a toxic posture and i think i think she's right to put that first
1: yeah and the second one's so important too: celebrating and encouraging others she writes who's out there in your world doing good work making an impact who has succeeded against all odds who is soaring right now celebrate them congratulate them and tell them exactly how great they are remind them of how valuable their work is in the world and do it regularly i know for me man uh i love when people celebrate me, (laughs) but when the shoe is on the other foot and going, man, that church up the road is doing awesome work. That pastor is just, you you know, killing it or this other person, let me highlight what they're doing. Uh, it's a lot harder when it's not about you and about Mm -hmm. other people. And, and it's this mutual celebrating and encouraging of others, I think is going to, is going to do other people well, but it's going to do your heart so well as well.
0: It really does, and I think when you uh, actually can loosen the, the grip of the first one, the scarcity mindset, and celebrate, you'll find that it actually gets easier and easier to do You know, future opportunities down the road. And let me just read the other one she has. She says, sharing, there are peers who would benefit from the lessons you've learned, the conversations you've had, the people you've met. There are introductions you could make, connections you could facilitate, advice you could give mm-hmm. that could propel others forward. There is help you could receive. Then she says, staying open to new relationships – When we're not defined by scarcity, peers are not threats, but rather opportunities for relationships and developing our networks of professional connections. She says, uh, welcoming collaboration. This is a tough one for pastors. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you don't have to undertake that project alone. Consider the people you can partner with to see a shared dream realized and then keeping it clean when competing. Is there ever a context when you have to compete? Perhaps it's because we've been burned by competitive attitudes and relationships that we might veer away from the idea we rightly emphasize the value of collaboration, the benefits of celebrating others. Nonetheless, there are still going to be contexts where we must compete. It might be at work when the two teams bid for the same account. It could be when you and a friend or a colleague apply for the same position, blah, 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 blah. Either way, her point is when it is time to compete, make sure that you're doing it cleanly, which I think mm-hmm. is I think that's an important call. Did any one of these stand out to you in particular, Brian?
1: Oh, that you you touched on it, the welcoming collaboration going, hey. Uh, maybe it doesn't have to all be about me. I, our prism is the church world, but maybe there's something we could do together with the church up the street instead of uh, making it just about my church, to, You know, almost quote unquote, defeating the other churches, doing something right. better than them. Maybe all of us in town doing something together, we could actually make some real headway into something and not worry about who gets the credit and who gets kind of top billing. That whole collaboration one is so important and yet so difficult.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And again, if you're not familiar with Joe Saxton, Just Google because, yeah, remarkable, and uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Coming up next, Joe Carter wrote an article for Gospel Coalition, Nine Things You Should Know About Ruby Bridges and School Desegregation. He's going to join us right here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and uh, we are absolutely thrilled to have for the first time, but hopefully not the last time, Joe Carter, welcome to the show, sir.
3: Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, my name is Joe Carter. I'm an uh, editor of the Gospel Coalition and a, uh executive pastor of McLean Bible Church in Arlington, Virginia.
1: Right on. And Joe, at the Gospel Coalition, just the other day you wrote just— a uh, Article we found fascinating says nine things you should know about Ruby Bridges and school de- desegregation. For those who might be out there going, I uh, Ruby Bridges, do I know that story? Could you uh, briefly tell us the story of Ruby Bridges?
3: Yeah, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old girl, African American child, that uh, living in New Orleans, and uh, in nineteen, uh, it was nineteen sixty. She was the first African American child to integrate into an elementary school in the South. At the time, uh, it was like six years after. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling came down that desegregated schools, but still in the South, the many of the schools fought against that for so long. It took six years for uh, Ruby to be the first one in, in the South to enter elementary school. Mm.
0: Now, why why is that so important for us to be talking about today in 2020?
3: I think one of the important things is that we, we hear a lot about racial unrest and we, a lot of racial issues, and we kind of think, well, aren't we past all that? Mm. And this story kind of reminds us that this this woman is still alive. It was only 60 years ago. Right. It's older you know, the age of our grandparents. And I mean, it's only, I'm I'm fifty 51 years old. It's only uh, about 10 years older than me that this yeah. happened. So it was, yeah. uh, this was in well within our lifetimes that this was still going on. Yeah. And what must, it, I
1: just can't imagine. I'm looking at the picture on your article of this little six year old girl uh, being walked out by, you know, it looks like police uh, and escort keeping her safe. What must it have been like? Is, is Do you have any inclination from other of, of your research, what it was like as a six-year-old to kind of be the focus of probably so much anger and uh, what effect that her has had in her life? Do, do you have any idea about that?
3: Yeah, from the stories I've heard, they, uh, when Ruby first, the first day of school, she was escorted in by uh, by four U.S. Marshals. These are the hmm. people that go after fugitives. Oh. They'd be serious serious lawmen to protect this girl. They walked her past uh, a crowd of a 1,000 people. Who were screaming insults at her, screaming racial slurs at this little girl, uh, and at the time she said she's. At first, she just thought it was like Mardi Gras because that was the only thing she's <laughs> ever seen crowds that hmm. size, and wow. she just assumed it was like a Mardi Gras celebration. And, um, but that was, that was, uh, the the attitude for. Her. And the problem was it didn't go away after this. The the marshals stayed with her for the rest of the school year. Wow. And none of the none of the teachers would teach her. None of the kids would have anything to do with her. She had one teacher who was who was from Boston. That agreed to teach her, and uh, so her and Ruby were the only student teacher for the whole year, all together with with them and the Marshals all year long. Wow, oh my goodness!
0: Well, one of the other things that you outline in this article is that you know her parents and grandparents were, I mean, pretty severely mistreated, and yet she still forgave the people involved, even those who threatened to kill her. Like, what do what do we do with that kind of mm-hmm. resolve to forgive people in an environment that? Like I I honestly don't even think I could conceive of that if I tried. Like what – how does that affect you? Why was that important for you to include in this list here?
3: Well, it kind of shows it just – it wasn't just about this little girl going to school. It was mm. about the, the community was so against this that they'd caused her they, – uh, they threatened to boycott the business her dad was working at unless he got fired. Uh, her grandparents were sharecroppers on a farm. And sharecroppers are probably the poorest of the uh, agricultural community. They got kicked off the farm and lost their livelihood, lost their home of 25 years. So this has had significant repercussions that uh, surrounded this event. And I think that's one of the things that uh, this wasn't just, you know, she got yelled at and screamed at when she's going to school and this was only an effect on her life. This was a huge effect on her life. and, And the fact that she was able to forgive this is just extraordinary.
1: Yeah. And at the end of the article in point nine that you make here, you talk about how she is now the chair of the Ruby Bridges Foundation, formed in 1999. And she says, each and every one of us is born with a clean heart. Our babies know nothing about hate or racism, but soon they begin to learn and only from us. We keep racism alive. We pass it on to our children. We owe it to our children to help them keep their clean start. I thought that was so powerful about just the importance of Uh, of sharing stories and history and and teaching our kids. Uh, What's our takeaway from that about our role in helping our kids understand history and know these types of stories?
3: I think it's an important point that if we don't teach our kids about this, then society will and Mm -hmm. society may not teach them the right lessons about this. And I think it's important for Christian parents, especially to just have a talk with their kids and explain to them why uh, these racial issues matter and why, um, people still hurt by these the effect of these policies and things that went on uh, within our lifetimes. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I've been curious to ask you about is, so you're both an editor, an author, and a pastor. And you know, Brian and I are both pastors first. And one of the things that sometimes we'll hear from people when we address topics of racism, racial unrest, racial reconciliation on the show is that people will say, aren't you guys pastors? You should just be talking about spiritual things. Like why are you bothering even weighing in? Or maybe that's feedback you've gotten. Why are you writing an article about this? You're a pastor. You should focus on quote unquote spiritual things. What What do you say to someone who maybe sincerely holds a position like that?
3: Well, one of the things is God, God just does make us spiritual beings He makes us physical beings and the physical world matters and things that go on in our world matters. And honestly, I've never heard anybody in our churches complain when we talk about abortion. It's only when we talk about something that that, touches that makes them uncomfortable, such as race, that they get kind of upset about it. Uh, And I think that uh, the gospel is not just about individual salvation. Gospel is about transformation of the world. It's not the social gospel, which kind of took away the salvific aspect of it. But uh, God, Jesus is coming to save the world, not just save our souls. So we have a a role to play in trying to uh, protect people and bring about justice in, in the ways that God has given us the influence to do so.
1: Yeah, that's good. And Joe, let me just jump to another article you wrote at the Gospel Coalition that Ian and I talked about uh, for a lengthy amount of time before the election. And I know we're on the other side of the election now. And uh, you wrote this at the end of October, why Christians are not morally obligated to vote. And uh, I, I think that probably catches some people by surprise to read that headline. Why would you say uh, that Christians are not morally obligated to vote?
3: Well, I think the, the one of the problems is that uh, – when we say more like we, – we have an obligation to be good citizens, and mm-hmm. so people kind of uh, simplistically translate that in as, well, if we're good citizens, then we will vote. Mm-hmm. The problem mm-hmm. is our system set up in a very binary way. We only have two real choices to vote. We have uh, Republicans or Democrats. What if there comes a time when they're both not optional for a Christian? What mm-hmm. what if a Christian can in good conscience vote for them? What should they do? Should they violate the conscience and violate sin against God just to carry out this duty? I, mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think it's um, – we have a c- civic responsibility, but we don't have a civic obligation. Mm-hmm. And here's what's interesting: is like uh, I served in the military for f- 15 years. Most of people who say you have to vote would not say you have to serve in the military. Interesting. Uh, they they don't see that. They see that as a civic responsibility. If you know, if we get called and drafted, we do. Uh, but it's a civic duty to vote. And I would say, voting and serving the military are both civic responsibilities. We should we have an agreed upon obligation as citizens to do those to benefit our country, but there may be times when we, our conscience says we can't participate in that. Yeah, uh, right. It's just that some people can't participate in the military, they may not participate in voting. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm against voting, but right. I, I'm against people making this a Christian obligation on people and binding their conscience in a way that goes beyond what Scripture allows. That's really good.
0: Joey mentioned earlier that you're both an editor and an author and a pastor. I'd love for you to take just the last 30 seconds or so that we have, let people know where can they find more of your writing, where can they get in contact with you or learn more about the church?
3: Yeah, uh, online. You can find me at thegospelcoalition.org. The I usually write about twice a week there. Uh, and if you're in Herndon or the uh, Virginia area, the Northern Virginia area, uh, we are welcome you to come to McLean Bible Church. We're uh, probably the, one of the largest churches in the area. And I'm uh, at the Arlington campus, so we'd love to see you there.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. You've been listening to Joe Carter, who is the author of this article, Nine Things You Should Know About Ruby Bridges and School Desegregation. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And when we we used to end with interweb insanity, Brian would often say, let's land this plane, let's dock this boat, and then we'd always leave space for a third ad-libbed one. Do you want to try to ad-lib one right now, Brian?
1: Well, the easy one is park the car. Uh, I
0: already I already said car. Oh no, I said land the plane. Yeah, don't go car. Go right. go creative. Don't do don't do the easy thing.
1: How about hey, let's let's chain the bike. Huh?
0: <laughs> 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 well, here's the thing. That means that the motion of the bike has already stopped. So they're communicating two different things. The first two are about stopping the motion of the item. This one's about securing it, <laughs> right? Good point. It's not, Good
1: point. All right, do you have one? Come on you're the no, creative
0: one of the show no, let's um let's uh let's mayo the potato salad <laughs> <laughs> all right now i don't think you're taking this seriously anymore <laughs> Wait, what was your first hint i do I mean anymore i haven't been taking it seriously since we got back from the break uh, okay so i found this uh this article that to me just seems so timely you know we've we've covered some news we've had some wonderful guests. If, you, if you're if you just joining us, by the way, we had some great guests this show. Highly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. But this to me just describes how so many people are feeling right now. So the headline is how to trust God when you can't see the way. And then the subheading is when the world is collapsing around you, it may be hard to see God's goodness, but he is still present. This is by Leslie White. And I thought this is this for me is maybe an appropriate way to end the show. Mm-hmm. There's a t- there's a ton going on, and we talked about, you know, Pritzker's address, and there's stuff happening in politics and the church, and th- there's a lot to be worried about. There's a lot to be fearful about. And I thought, okay, this this feels like the right way to end. How do how do we trust God when you just can't see the way or you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel? So do you want to do you want to get us into it, Brian?
1: Yeah, and I think you set it up so well. I think this is the description of so many people out there right now. And going, I, I, gosh, I know God's present, but I can't see what's going on. And I just feel hopeless and lost. And so I think this is a good way to end. It says, the Bible tells us in Joshua nine one nine, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It's important to have faith in God when you can't see the way. But how can you offer God praise when you're dealing with hardship and pain? The choices you make in these moments are so important. They can propel you toward God or away from him. You can find God in the hard times by choosing to trust and hope when we can't see the way. This will help us turn to praise and glorify God better. According to Scripture, praise is an act of our will that flows out of us through reverence to God. Our God is worthy of praise. And then skipping down later, it says, The book of Lamentations gives us a great example of a worshiper who experienced pain, And yet use the act of remembering as a pathway to praise him in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. I will remember then, and my soul downcast within me, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Uh, And so uh, the author says later on, as we begin to invest our lives in Scripture and pay attention to the pain in our lives, we recognize that in times of anguish, God is closer and more at work than we know or realize. The Bible says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who brings comfort uh, who comforts us in all our affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we uh, for as we shared abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with uh, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. That's Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. The author says, God is present, come rain or shine. He is even present when we fail to realize it. It's important that we not only turn our focus back to praise when we begin to lose hope, but also that we turn to praise in times of abundance. Many of us are quick to question God when things go wrong, but slow to honor him when things go well. One of the biggest challenges here is turning every blessing he pours into our lives back into praise. And then the author closes this way. When we focus our minds in the direction of God and proclaim his goodness, we reflect his glory. When we do this, we are filled with peace and contentment. This can help shift our outlook related to our circumstances. Finding God in the hard times can be particularly difficult. That's why it's so important to choose trust and hope when we can't see the way. If you're looking to learn more ways to weather the storms, it goes on to offer a book by Matt Redmond, Finding God in the Hard Times. but says, that's why it's so important to choose trust and hope when we can't see the way. Ian, in so many ways, this is the key especially when things are dark and things are difficult. But it's just that this is really difficult to do when you're kind of in the middle of the storm.
0: Well, and not to keep mentioning it, but, you know, we had Becky Harling on earlier on the show and she just wrote a book, Psalms for the Anxious Heart, a 30-day mm-hmm. devotional for uncertain times. Like, it's hard for me to imagine a more timely topic, right? That's such a, everybody, you know, regardless of where in the country or where in the world you live or your socioeconomic background or your theological bent, your political bent. a lot of it, we just feel uncertainty and I mm-hmm. I think that this article is it's simplistic but it's profound you know what I mean like it is it's easy in this age of sort of like information whiplash to just get our attention drawn to the you know the next headline or the next alarm that's being sound or the next thing that's even happening like in our own lives and that's natural but I feel like even more so now with everything else that's going on it's it's so important like what this author says in the last paragraph, focusing our minds in the direction of God. This is part of what, you know, when Paul talks about thinking on such things, like that can seem trite, like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, just thinking on these, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. That's not going to like lead to my sanctification. I actually think that it does. I think when Paul Mm -hmm. says, don't be conformed into the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, what are the patterns of the world? Like, look around you right now. It's like, it's chaos. It's fear. Maybe it's, greed it's Mm -hmm. division it's partisanship it's name calling you know that's what that's a lot of what the patterns of the world look like right now and so one of the ways paul says that we stand against that is this this metamorpho this transformation the renewing of our mind like what Mm -hmm. if we as christ followers became more intent to not ignore the difficulties and uncertainties but to fix our eyes on on Jesus, on the author and perfecter. I think oftentimes we flip it. Like we fix our eyes on all the problems and then we glance at Jesus every once in a while. What if that was inverted a little bit more? What if we were more intent on like fixing our eyes on him and then we paid attention to the brokenness and pain around us? I just think, at least for me, that that's sometimes an important shift for me.
1: That's good. And and I think the last thing I'll say on this is, especially when you're in the storm or in the darkness or whatever metaphor you want to use, that's yeah. when we say this often. That is where... Uh, the importance of having deep community around you yeah. uh, is so important, not just people to pray for you, but also people to remind you of these truths. Because these aren't things that, like if I'm in the middle of it, these aren't necessarily the things that are gonna come to mind, right? But but it says people are speaking truth. No, God is still present. Let me remind you of his promises. I think this is one of the many reasons we talk so often about the importance of community for for when you're in the storm or when you're in the darkness. It's It's the people around you who are there to like, be your support uh who can also then speak truth to you.
0: Yeah and I think one of the things that uh I've I've tried to say to myself first and foremost is that Jesus isn't protection from the storm he's protection in the storm. Mm. You know so often the prayer is god just take this awful thing from me which is a completely reasonable prayer you see that all throughout scripture but sometimes the answer is no, I'm going to actually, I'm going to be with you in the storm. And that probably describes what a lot of us are feeling right now. Either way, I hope that that is an encouragement in some way that like everything is up on our Facebook page and we would love to know what you'd think. And with that, we wrap up today's show, but fear not as we are instructed in the good book. We will be back again tomorrow from four to 6 PM for Brian from my name is Ian Simpkins and you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.